Welcome to another episode of Compressed FM, a podcast all about web design and development with a little bit of zest. And today's episode is super special because it's a crossover episode with the front end happy hour. Web development and design, who would have guessed what we can do on both, even add a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compressed. I've, I've got a good kickoff question. Uh, I, I believe I work with somebody who also guests on y'all's podcast. Oh, yeah. Stacy, like, right? Reg- regular pa- panelist, yes. Yeah, Stacy. I saw when you were at Atlassian, I'm like, yep, you probably know Stacy London. So, yes, yes, she's been a regular on the podcast for years now. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I worked on the front end platform team and she was doing, you know, actual product development, uh, a lot of accessibility focus. She's awesome to work with. And recently, she got moved over to work on Confluence just like I did. And she's still bringing all the great, you know, all the great skills over to Confluence. That's awesome. I'm sad that we don't even have her on today. I yeah, know. I know. Perfect. <laughs> we could have had like a massive panel. <laughs> <laughs> so we're almost at the end of the year, which is very hard to believe, by the way. Thanksgiving is next week at the time of recording this. Thinking towards 2024. Are there any technologies, platforms, tools that you're excited about for 2024? Either that you've like heard of in 23, never had a chance to try and you want to try it out, or you tried it in 23 and you're like, I've got to use this in 24. Or maybe it's just something you hear more and more momentum about that you think people should know about in 2024. I mean, for me, starting off too is like, I feel like it's not necessarily new, but I'm seeing it pick up a lot more in the front end community is like the micro front ends, but like using like module federation, that's definitely been one that even my team has been exploring a lot or actually not even exploring. We're leveraging it uh, because we have built a front end platform that we want to be able to extend to other teams to be able to ship code without having to be in the same repository and like working in that same code base. And so you want to be able to extend and that module federation has worked really well for that. I feel like just starting to do that more. I've just, maybe it's because we're doing it. I'm hearing more and more about teams like leveraging that. And so I I don't see that trend going away in 2024. I feel like we're going to see more of that. So that's one that, you know, it's not necessarily new or something that I'm necessarily like, wow, we need to try this, but that I'm just seeing more of it. So I think that one's, I would think come to mind. One thing that's really interesting to me is, I don't know, Brad and I have talked a lot about how the problems that he deals with at Atlassian are very different than like an indie developer problem. And so, you know, I would stick, we've had a few people on the podcast talk about like the death of micro front ends or microservices and, you know, what's going to happen in the future. But like, I think it just goes to show that they're still very much around and people are very much incorporating them and they do solve a problem. I kind of saw the same thing when I was at GraphQL conference because people are saying like GraphQL is going away. We hate GraphQL, but then you come here and it's like all these enterprise solutions are all about GraphQL. I can't tell you how many times I heard federation at that conference, but it does solve a very important problem for enterprise. And sometimes that's maybe the largest or maybe the biggest money-making market, but sometimes the quietest market. Yeah. Yeah, that's true because like that, those enterprise conversations always tend to happen behind closed doors and not in the public out on Twitter, like all the open source stuff does. Yeah. And I mean, calling out GraphQL, like married with the like module federation, like that's something that we 
we're heavily using um, mm-hmm. at Netflix just from this, especially on my team, being able to do that. It allows teams to, you know, write schemas outside of our code base and being able to leverage that. Like, that's huge. I think there's a lot of power there. I don't think it's going away. That's really funny to hear. You're right. Like, it'll just be some hot take on Twitter. And maybe it's not <laughs> the best use for some of those projects, like a smaller project. It's like, yeah, maybe you don't need GraphQL. And that that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Same thing with module federation. It's like, you don't need to overkill those things. But when you need to use them, the tools there and there are good use cases for it. I think one of the things that I see changing in 2024 is that right now the JavaScript ecosystem has always been one of choice. There's a million different ways, a million different ORMs, a million different database solutions, a million different query libraries. And we're starting to kind of pick our favorites and develop frameworks around them. So Amy Redwood has made its bet on certain things. And you'll see Ken C. Dodds like Epic Stack has made its bet on certain technologies But I think what we're going to see is instead of saying, hey, I picked the best frameworks and glued them all together for you, I think we're going to start to see, hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, a standardization (laughs) on like, this is just kind of the way we do things. And now we can start building logic on top of that because we've settled on these specific libraries. And there's an analog in like, let's say the Laravel community, because Laravel has standardized on the way they speak to their database or other things in their ecosystem, they can make layers of abstraction on top of that so that now you don't have to think about what ORM you're using. You just know that it knows how to communicate with your query library and you can build helpers around stuff like that. And now JavaScript has fully stepped into, let's say, the the Laravel-like world where like you can spin up a project and have users and analytics and database models and permissions out of the box. That's my take for 2024. We'll see. Done. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm with you. Uh, when everybody's like, oh, Next.js is so great. And they're for sales building on top of that. I mean, it was like, oh, PHP. Yeah. And like, oh, <laughs> PHP yes. too, et cetera, uh, which got some shade, but it's not wrong. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with it. It's more when you get dogmatic about it and mm-hmm. like the one solution versus. I don't know. They're, that's what's great about JavaScript is we're not locked into anything. But you're right. When you look at more mature languages, Java has... Um, Ryan, what do we use? Uh, what's our big framework at uh, Netflix? You use Spring, yeah. Spring Boot? Spring, uh, Spring Boot. Boot, yeah, thank you. You know, Spring Boot's like the thing to go to. And you mentioned Laravel. So I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's just a sign of maturity. But with that comes the promise of open source and, and JavaScript and an open ecosystem where we're moving away from that, where we get locked into a specific vendor that are controlled by a single company. You know, that, that's more of a, not ethical debate, but you know, uh, it, it's not super critical to our day-to-day, but it's more of like, who are we as a spirit of, of JavaScript developers? That's and true. That, because that's a different, yeah. JavaScript will always be married to the browser and the browser and the internet, it always has that backbone of being open to everybody. So yeah, hopefully what comes out of this isn't behind closed doors. It's something we can all agree on collectively without, let's say, putting a price tag or a, or a brand name on it. Can, can I share how much optimism I have for that and happening? <laughs> <laughs> I thought the it, same it is, thing. It is very little. I love the idea. I think that's like, it's so much of what people have wanted for the JavaScript ecosystem is the standardization. And we always compare 
Ruby on Rails and Laravel and all these other frameworks. And for better or for worse, we are where we are with like frameworks. And I think it's going to be a really hard thing to get away from. I do think though, like the individual frameworks are getting more opinionated and having more into into like already decided for you, which I think ex- accelerates the ability to build stuff, which is what we care about. But I still think we have like lots of those. And it still amazes me after all the memes that we still have a new JavaScript framework that pops out out of nowhere every once in a while. Like it, it just still happens because people think that there's still a better way and there is, but it is that like law of diminishing returns of how much is that extra bit really worth the time that we invest into it, the learning a new ecosystem or framework, the learning a new tool set, whatever. It's just a constant challenge, but I do, I am happy at the options that we have. <laughs> but recently, and I'm glad you mentioned Laravel, that has been a topic I've seen. Maybe it's just me coming across it recently or paying attention on Twitter. I feel like it's just blown up recently, especially even in response to me. When I mostly talk about JavaScript, people are like, well, you're missing out on Laravel. So I feel like there, maybe that something is, maybe that is something I should look into and just kind of play around next year to have a better idea of how it compares. And maybe I'll switch over. We'll see. You've been hanging around Chris Sev too long. <laughs> a lot of Chris is definitely one of them, but there's lots What's of big fans. Crazy to me is the Laravel team's like three people. Yeah, is it and really? You, yeah, and if you go in and look, they have so few issues and open PRs. It's mm. like they're so on top of everything. To go back to the original question, I don't know. This is something that I'm necessarily excited about. It's something that I'm watching for. So mm. this is going to roll the design side of the conversation and the old lady side of the conversation all into one. But I was on Twitter this morning and saw Jay post about some of the cool stuff that he's looking at where he's taking a Figma design and copying and pasting it and it works. It's just code. And it's like, this is what we've been talking about for years. Or Wes boss had a short where he's like, Hey, here's a little drawing I did. And it looks kind of crappy. And he's like, I'm going to click this button that says, make it real. And it's like real form elements. And it actually looks well-designed. And all of a sudden he can interact with it. And so part of me is like super excited about that because you have the democratization of the web, of design, you're empowering people to go on and be able to make cool things. But then there's part of me that like Sarah Dresner said this when she was talking about AI, like it's cool, but I like my job as it is now. This is where the old lady part comes in. And I like the stuff that I do. I think I'll still continue to have a job, but the nature of my work and how I actually execute that will change. And so that's the part that makes me nervous because I like it now, but I'm not sure what that future looks like and something that I am keeping an eye on for 24. Yeah, Amy, I'm glad you brought up that one. Like the Figma stuff has blown my mind. Like it's Mm -hmm. so impressive in so many ways because like we've all seen this. This has come up many times in web development for years, right? That it's like, oh, they're like just export to web and it's going to work and stuff. And like it's never worked. It's always (laughs) been really crappy experience. And it's like, at you know, at one point, Microsoft Word had an export to like HTML. Like, yes, it it never. That's what front page was. Exactly. Like it did. Did not work properly. And like Figma is the one where it's like, wow, this is like really thinking very thoughtfully on creating like shared reusable components and like thinking how we would think of translating a design to actual code. And so I can see like, yes, like it, it, it does feel like it's like, 
what's my need as a front end mm-hmm. engineer anymore? But it's like so powerful in the sense that I, I see value in it, just enabling even designers being able to do more of that. You're tightening up the collaboration between design and front end. I do think that there's still always going to be a need for us as a role. It's not going to just go away. We've seen this happen time and time again, where like a new tool just kind of takes the heavy lifting away from us. And you're like, wow, that's amazing. And it's like you find time to fill it with with something else. And it's not to say that you have to use these tools. If you're like, I just want to hand code a React component. I don't want Figma to do it for me. You can still do that. But I I hear your complaint there too, is if it takes away something that like brings you joy as an Mm -hmm. engineer, that's tough. Well, and here's the part that I feel like you just have to have an open mind about. I was listening to a podcast with a venture capital company. I wish I could remember who it was. Um, But they were talking about just like chat GPT had just come out and people were freaking out about their jobs and about the future and what's going to happen. We're all going to be out of work. And they had run the numbers and said, well, if you look at the jobs within the last 100 years, I don't remember the exact percentages, but it was like 75% of the jobs that we have now did not exist a hundred years ago. And most of our jobs did not exist a no. hundred years ago. You didn't have social media man- managers. You didn't have UI UX designers. You didn't have any of these roles that we now love to do. And so I think for me, there was hope in that conversation to say, whatever we're doing 20 years from now, there'll be new things that we can be just as excited about. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a good call. Because yeah, even when I feel like when I was in school, like a lot of things are even doing some of the work that we do in software engineering. There's things that have drastically changed even while being in the industry that you're like, mm-hmm. job didn't exist when I started. Front-end engineering didn't. That was not a thing when I was started. Just like, I did a lot of flash work back in the day. And like, <laughs> I you know, flash. yeah, so do I. I definitely <laughs> miss flash. Um, but it's like that has changed. I've seen it change mm-hmm. just in my career. So that's uh, that's a good call out. It's a tech on Ryan's point. I think we'll just get to the specialization of front-end. Versus five years ago, it's like, oh, you're a front-end engineer. Cool, you make websites. But now it's like, you're a front engineer. I'm like, oh, cool. What exactly do you do, though? Are you, mm-hmm. are you like UX? Are you accessibility? Are you performance? I think it's just where we're going to head. I'm with you, Amy. There, there is something, some of the magic taken away when like a tool does it for you. But to tie in Ryan's point, like there's still plenty of work to do. Mm-hmm. If someone takes away like the easy work that like honestly... Do we need senior engineers building forms? Probably not. <laughs> like is, that's not the best use of their skills of doing something they've done a hundred times before. So I'm optimistic on that point, and I'm really hoping the web will just become better. We can build more interactive pieces because we're not focusing so much on like the mundane things that, like, where, how does the button fit on the page and things like that. That you know, we're not getting a tremendous amount of value out of there in, in terms of learning. It's just something we've done. The, well, the worry there is, of course the youths uh, um, that don't know how this stuff works, which mm-hmm. you do need to know how it works. Like it's great. You can Lego your way to a web page these days, but when something breaks, you're not going to know how to fix it and debugging. And because you've built it before is like a critical skill as a software engineer that that's one of my concerns is like, people don't know how to debug things. And if they can't stack overflow it, mm-hmm. then like they're kind of screwed. But like mm-hmm. that's that's just a future worry. But you can see it already in some of the questions that I've seen on Twitter and Reddit. And I'm like, that's kind of basic stuff. How did you get this far without knowing that? Mm-hmm. Stop mm-hmm. calling out my Twitter questions in front of everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
There was, I did a bunch of research. So I've given a, a talk several times on AI revolutionizing developer experience. And it's meant to kind of address like we, we over dramatize everything about it. Like all the jobs are going away. People are fearful, all the things. And we've already kind of touched on this, but this is not really that different than any other technological advancement that we've had in the past, right? Like people, people that used to physically set up servers. Now there's not that many people that do that, right? Because there's a, a selection of people that do that and we do stuff that takes care of it for us. And there was a really interesting thing that I read up a little bit about called Jevons Paradox. And the idea that like, if AI can do our job faster than we can, we fear that it's going to replace us. But Jevons Paradox says like, if it can do that stuff for us faster, now what we're capable of building and the problems that we're able to solve we can go beyond thing that we're able to think of and envision now. So like our ability to build, our ability to solve problems just gets exponentially bigger and higher because we can leverage those tools to build the mundane stuff that we're talking about and then think about higher level problems. I thought that was a really interesting take on trying to address like some of the fear that people have. But I do think, Amy, you brought up a valid point of like the next iteration of your job, there, I think there will be a job and it will be an iteration but you may or may not like it as much, but I think we also have learned to fall in love with the things that we do now and we've kind of pursued things that we enjoy the most. So those things may be things we never thought about in five years, but we may still be able to make that decision to go whichever of the available paths that we enjoy the most. I had tons of optimism because we have hardware that a lot of the form factor has not changed that much over the last 10 years. My phone still is a rectangle with a screen that it's been that way for the last 10 years. My laptop still looks very similar, at least the casing of it, as it did 20 years ago. Like we can store more on there. They do stuff faster and process things. The internet's faster. But in my mind, software is one of the areas where we have the biggest gains. And what can we do with software on that hardware that will allow us to do more work? That's really encouraging to me. Yeah, and it's come up a lot in this, this, this conversation about AI, right? Like, I, I'm curious for you all, like, what are you using AI for now? What are your thoughts on AI? Like, we're hearing little snippets of it already, James sharing that. But like, yeah, I'm curious for all of you, like, are you using it today? What are you leveraging it for? What's like your thoughts on AI? I think at Atlassian, it's severely undervalued. Don't get me wrong, we all ran to throw AI assistance into a lot of our products as like a quick, you know, mm. I can check that box, our company does that. Yep. But I think actually bringing it into the development cycle has been pretty undervalued, mostly because nobody wants to invite the entire cloud into their private company, their private code bases and say like, sure, we're going to hand you all of our code so you can help us write it or give you all of our problems so you can help us solve them. Um, obviously, there will be advances in having smaller language models or hosting your own that are coming out that I hope Atlassian and other companies continue to start investing in domain specific AI helpers and things like that. But we did just launch GitHub Copilot in beta at our company. So that's been great. <clears throat> I've had it disabled for quite a long time. And then when Atlassian rolled it out, I was like, let me flip this back on. And man, you, awesome. you can tell like when it's only enabled for the code that your company writes, it gets it so much better, really does. 
I find that funny too, Brad, that like Atlassian's leveraging GitHub Copilot when it's like, you're probably using a lot of Bitbucket too, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, yes, we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but still, you know how it does the, uh, I don't know what to call it. Like it takes the code around the code that you're writing and, you know, brings that into its responses. And I think that's where the context is really helping out. And that's but, even uh, gotten better within the last month mm-hmm. Yeah, for like normal projects. Yeah. But you also said it well, too, is the companies, too, like having to feel safe that they're what are they bringing Mm -hmm. in? It's like that can slow down some of that innovation or adoption. And I think it's okay. Like companies need to be thoughtful on that. That can't just be like, wow, that's super cool. Let's just try this out. There's repercussions to that or they need to like really think, think how does this work? And like, what are some of the downsides and trade-offs? You don't want to just throw it in your code base and hope for the best, which yeah, Copilot's amazing. It's really impressive. But I do also respect companies for just slow the roll a little bit. Let's, you know, talk through what does that actually look like? Yeah, but I feel like another place where I've used, you know, AI to just help me out on a daily basis is, and James and Amy, I know you'll resonate with this, in the terminal. I've been using Warp a lot lately. And with its AI features, number one, it's just like really helpful for complex Git commands or things like that. But we also have, you know, very complex internal CLIs. And this warp terminal, you can just kind of ask it questions about stuff and it can give you the answers, even if it's an internal CLI. And then on top of that, you can build workflows and all sorts of stuff. So seeing definitely little productivity gains, you know, here and there on the daily but nothing like completely groundbreaking yet. I mean, ChatGPT is always a good one, right? Like it never gets old for how many ways that you can leverage it. Like just even starting from nothing, like I leveraged ChatGPT to kind of, okay, like start this email or start some of these Mm -hmm. things for me, I think is super powerful. Another one that I've thoroughly enjoyed, um, I do a lot of photography and have leveraged some of the Adobe um, generative AI that's in the um, Photoshop is actually, it's pretty much across their suite now, which is amazing. Like it's impressive. Like there's just things that I used to have to do that were so tedious. And like, I'm not sad that that's going away from my like Mm -hmm. workflow. It's like, yeah, cool. Take, remove that background for Mm -hmm. me. And like, no thinking. Thank you so much. And it's not always perfect, but it's honestly will get me so close to doing it for versus having to spend half an hour trying to clean something up. It's seconds to minutes, right? So I think that's super powerful. Some of the art stuff I'm not completely sold on yet. I feel like that's where AI feels a little weird because it's also, it's been stealing art too, right? Yeah. Where it's like, actually taking other people's art and generating something new from it. It feels a little wrong. I I don't know. That one still bothers me a bit. And I don't know if we've quite figured that one out. Yeah, man. Shout out to Adobe. That was the last company I worked at. And they always did such a good job of staying on the forefront of it was like machine learning at the time when I was there. And they like really leaned into that for recommendations, engines and search and things like that. Uh, But yeah, AI came out and man, like their creative suite just went nuts with it. And it was so cool to watch. And I'm happy the stock is going back up. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably the most important part. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. I think the fact that ChatGPT is so open is overwhelming for some people. And I use it all the time, Ryan, for exactly the same use case of just creativity and ideas. Like I'll ask it for YouTube video ideas. I'll tell it to give me like, title options for YouTube videos. I'll give it 
like ask for demo ideas. But I think what we'll continue to see is more specialized products. And Brad, you kind of talked about this from like a GitHub Copilot perspective, like doing LLMs on code data, like in your own code base, but also just like any segment of data, whether it's a content creation or whatever other industry you can think of, like it being able to learn specific to a given context and give better results for that specific context. And then from a product perspective, implementing that, including that in a way that's convenient for you and providing a nice user experience for it. I think that's the, I think that's the future of how we interact with it more is it being more specialized and just really tailoring those experiences to be focused on whatever the exact use case is. I'm curious did anyone see the AI pen? Yeah. I think we talked about this a little bit yeah. last week. Did you see? Did you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> That's a note for me. <laughs> it's one of those things that looks good on paper and, and like a lab, but the the fact is, and kind of what you're going back to saying, Amy, on the form factors on hardware hasn't changed much. Using your phone, but like your hand instead is like one of those like oh that's really cool just like what's the ux that everybody loves is the minority Mm -hmm. reports now like Mm -hmm. which looks cool but the reality is one that's exhausting Uh, yeah (laughs) yeah two it's just not practical for a variety of reasons and the same thing for the ai pen on your hand like using your phone as your projects onto your hands you can use it is cool in theory but in practice it's going to be finicky sunlight is like it's not beating the phone, but also why do I want a round trip time on, on like hardware, like build it in mm-hmm. once we have an AI chip built into yeah. hardware, which it's coming very quickly, yeah. especially with the development of like Apple's pushing the bounds on chip development. Intel's doing it too. And like, I think we're going to see an arms race in terms of chip development. Then we're talking, but for now it's a gimmicky device. Um, I'm not knocking the hard work of people that like put it into, but I, I just don't see the practicality there. I'm so, glad, I'm so glad you pulled up a minority report because I heard Tom Cruise was exhausted shooting that video, <laughs> trying to like wave his arms around all the time. And people don't think like our cush desk jobs where we're just like moving our fingers. That's it. <laughs> hey, hey, we're not even typing anymore. We're just hitting tab and autocomplete on Copilot. <laughs> right? That's it. Right? That means that Pink is getting more and more tired though. Yeah. Oh, man. Now I'm curious, has anybody created a custom GPT? I was looking at that. Want this to? I know I've seen some examples of it. Like Kitsay, I think yeah. is hysterical. De- another developer on Twitter made a Kitsay GPT, and it, it mm. responds like him because he's snarky and funny and straight to the point. And when you talk to it, it sounds just like him. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I was cool. looking at it just because I've gotten to the point where I have several workflows where I feel like I'm asking Chat GPT the same questions over and over again, and if I can create a custom GPT that I just give it the basic information and that goes through the workflow for me, that could be really interesting. Or even like writing in your tone, like if you mm-hmm. can start to like mm-hmm. train it to be like, this is my voice. So if it's like, write me that email, write me a doc or write me whatever. It's like, that to me is pretty cool too, where it's actually kind of scary too, where it's like, it literally mm-hmm. becomes like what I would want and and knows me versus now when I would put something in chat GBT, I feel like it, 
it starts something for me and I'm like, I would never write it that way. So I'm going to mm-hmm. tweak that or change it. But like imagine over time that it's just like, yeah, no, I'm going to put this in Ryan's tone. This is how mm-hmm. Ryan would mm-hmm. say that. That's pretty powerful. And, but also maybe limiting too, right? Where it's like, it's just regurgitating my own like way of doing something. And it's maybe I'm not evolving as a person and get mm-hmm. like learning something new because I'm just kind of regurgitating what I've already done. Yeah, I want like me but like 10% better. Like, let me crank yes, that up. Like, let that. me sound smarter. <laughs> Brad.ai. I love it. I was going to say, that's probably been my biggest use case other than like the typical co-pilot stuff is just writing. Sometimes writing just feels hard to me and I feel like I'm a much better editor than I am a writer. And so if I can use ChatGPT or any of these other services to at least give me a starting point, then it becomes a whole lot easier and I am able to move faster. That's I a mean, good way about, to phrase that a better editor than writer. I feel the exact mm-hmm. same way. Mm-hmm. What about AI for like audio though too? Like you could like, we don't even have to be That's here. Right? Like, <laughs> like let's take our voices and just be like, have a conversation about AI and like tech in 2023. And it's just like, it's a podcast episode. You know, it's got all mm-hmm. five of us on spit that out. Like that's kind of wild to me. Like it mm-hmm. totally could take our voices and replicate it, probably <laughs> learn how we would respond to certain things. That's, that's wild. Mm-hmm. And the deep and do fake video stuff. too. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. And video Knowing too. what's real yeah. and what's yeah. not. That's, that's, scary. that's scary to me. So I have I heard saw. that like the, the roundup type podcasts that look at the headlines and, you know, talk about them. Those have been automated in some cases where they read the tech headlines mm-hmm add in a little commentary, generate the audio and publish. There's got to be, I think that's one of the big steps going forward is the figuring out legality issues, um, moral issues, ownership issues. Like I think we're just in, and this is not the type of stuff that interests me, but like that's so much that someone slash a group of people have to figure out of how do we harness this in a way like it, it obviously can be really effective, but we also have concerns about all the things that we're talking about because they could have really negative implications. Like there's been TV shows in the past. I mean, probably a long time that show, I guess 10 years, maybe that show examples of people creating deep fakes and incriminating certain people for things they didn't do. And that's something that, you know, is pretty scary. Not just like it's weird to see, but also the implications of that can be pretty, pretty intense. So I think the world just catching up from documentation, legality, all those things is that's going to be a significant challenge. Shifting us off the AI <laughs> a little bit. One, the going back to the original question of uh, <laughs> you know, technology, things like that. I guess on a more cynical side, what I'm not looking forward to is the locking down of the internet more. This was always going to be a problem when you have one one company that's dominant and makes the dominant browser. In this case, it's Google with Chrome, which is you know a fantastic browser. They've put billions of dollars into it, and it shows. However, we see now like them locking down sites where it's like, oh, you have to have trusted content that only works on our API. Um, we have these privacy sandbox things that supposedly don't track you, but it's supposed to be tracking you and like you can't opt out anymore because we've all chosen to like put our eggs into this one basket and they're increasingly becoming, we'll say like more hostile towards developers in terms of like what you can and can't do in the browser. Because at the end of the day, like they're here to sell ads. I'm not knocking them. That's just their business model, but everything they're doing is in in service of doing that. So 
it's such a shame to see us go that way. We did it with Internet Explorer where we had to build a lot of proprietary things because they had an opinion about how things should be built. And we're doing it again with Chrome. I don't, I don't know. It's just like <laughs> we keep swinging back this way. And I'm a little disappointed in that's the way the Internet is heading, which I understand. But there's definitely been a trend of that in 2023. We're going to see it more in 2024. Yeah, that's a great point. I started to ask if you've used Arc, because I've been moving more towards Arc, but it's running Chromium underneath. Mm-hmm, like right. it's still it's, it's still the no, same thing. It's like the illusion of choice at this point, because yeah. so many browsers mm-hmm. are running V8 and you're like, oh, what do you mean? We're flourishing right now. But no, they're standardizing under the hood, which, so, and- yeah, it is a double-edged sword because when Google wants a feature, a specific proposal, it goes through quickly, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've also heard they pay Firefox just so it's not a monopoly. So it's like they're even funding the only competition there is. There's something else that I just read that I didn't understand about Safari, I think. It's something about Google paying, but I didn't understand what exactly it was. Maybe it's a similar thing to what you just said. I I don't uh, know. Safari is still on Chromium too, right? It is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wish I could. I don't know that I could go back and find that. It'd be good to better understand that. There's one. So I worked at an authentication company at Auth0. And I understand the importance of authentication, but I can't wait to like make this TikTok one day of like how difficult it is to log into certain things sometimes. So like an example, if I try to log into a Google account on my phone, that's not like I'm already logged into my Gmail, like in the browser, I go to log in and then I have to do one password because I use a password manager. And so I then use my eye to like confirm that. And then it puts in the password And then Google has no concept of me having a safe password or not. So Google's like, all right, we're going to do second verification. And it sends a notification where I have to go from the browser to open the Google app to click the thing to come back. And half the time, that loop never works. And it's like, sometimes I'm just like, I I guess I won't be able to log into Google like on (laughs) on my browser. And again, like I kind of similar, Jim, I think to what you were saying, like I understand how serious that is. But I think we also sometimes aren't honest of how inconvenient it is. Cause we talk about like 2FA and I remember this being like talking points, like it makes it so much easier because you can use your eye and your finger and things to log in and not need your password. But the reality is I'm needing like 10 different things just to get into one place that I used to be able to use the password. So even though I think a lot of it's necessary, I think sometimes we're not as honest with how uncomfortable or how inconvenient it is to be able to authenticate sometimes. And I'll just say with kids, that eyeball <laughs> is not that secure because mm. I'll be sitting there and my daughter will want to do something on my phone and she'll just flash my phone in my face <laughs> <Yeah>. and then <laughs> it'll register and go through and I'm not even paying attention. And I look over and I'm like, what did you do? <laughs> and she's buying I mean, stuff on Amazon again. Yeah. <laughs> Good for her. Like, I mean, she figured it out. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, can we talk about like this whole pass key transition? Yes. Um, (laughs) I don't think I still fully understand it. I mean, I I know it's kind of moving like your pass keys are stored in the cloud protected by biometrics, but anybody like it, 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 okay. It's a public private (laughs) key pair, right? That's what I know. And your public key is stored on device and your private is stored on cloud. Is that, is that how I understand it? So are you, do you mean the physical devices like UB keys? Is that what you're talking about? No, on your like computer, on your phone. It's like an SSH okay. key pair. You can kind of think about it like mm-hmm. that. But your private yeah. key is stored on cloud, if I understand correctly. 
Yeah, they're called passkeys. Um, like that's the, the official name for them. And it's stored on your device. So generally that's going to be your phone and it is backed by biometrics or, or whatever. Uh-huh. It seems like a great idea, but when you really, really think about it, like what is happening is now your authentication about who you are is locked into a specific manufacturer. So whether that's Apple, Google, or even one password has their own implementation. Key. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, not... what happens when your phone falls to the bottom of the lake? Like that is the situation that I don't quite understand how you come out of. You have to like beg Apple or what? Usually have yeah, actually methods, right? Like, like email or text or something, which is less secure text, especially. But don't you usually have or you have like the recovery codes. That's one thing I've never understood. I've never like, written one down in my codes. life. I only do it because I have one password and I know I can like safely put it. But what does a normal person who doesn't have that or think about this? Like, what do they do with those? They probably write them down on the sticky note and then leave them around in case they need them. Right. Like that. I I would think the average person doesn't know what to do with those. No, it's probably written on a like, yeah, notebook at their desk or sticky note right on the computer. You know, it's like, I I don't know. You're right. Password. Yeah. (laughs) One password one two three four five six. Yeah. It's super secure. Exclamation! Make it super secure. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. yeah, and probably change maybe like you know it's really secure is like you just change the A to an, to app an app. Symbol. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That's that's what I've heard works really well. It's that like convenience versus I don't know uh, security or like yeah. yeah yeah like and Brad to your point like that's my concern too is if who I am is tied to my phone like entirely and I lose my phone or it gets stolen or something like that. You know, there's a real, very real future where they're like, well, no, because we see you're over here in Canada. And I'm like, I'm not in Canada. Someone stole my phone. I'm who I am. They're like, well, that's not what your phone is. That's not what this very secure mechanism is. They're like, you're not real. You could be using an AI generated voice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, we have all these ways of proving you're real. And then I have to prove myself that I'm real to these like third party companies versus now I control that. So I understand the pros and cons, but it's just one of those the path we're heading down, we have to think of like all of the scenarios there, which are not pleasant. I wonder if the backup, because it's like, it's not like Apple could just back it up to iCloud and then you put in your iCloud password, right? Like at the end of the day, it would all come down to a password. What if the backup was like something like a YubiKey that had the key stored in it so that then at least, you know, maybe you could stick it into the USB-C port on the bottom or something like that where, okay, now you've restored your your pass key or something like that. I mean, this is when we're getting into chip implants. You're going to get a chip implant that you can't lose. You know, animals are really ahead of the game in this situation. (laughs) (laughs) This reminds me, you're talking about the trade-off of convenience versus security or whatever. Reminds me of the initial conversation with GitHub, not letting people copy their thing. (laughs) Because that was their best solution that they came up with to prevent people from doing something. That they didn't want to, but from our, from just a user perspective, it's like, that's also like wildly annoying and inconvenient. (laughs) So one of the things that I was thinking about or wanted to talk about out of sheer curiosity is at least Jim, Ryan, and I got to meet in in Atlanta over the summer. Do people have conferences coming up or planning on going to next year? Oh, yeah. The conferences, those lists start coming in like right and out, right around now. It's like, what's it coming in 2024? Um, I still need to look, to be honest, like mm-hmm. what are ones that I want to go to? Um, one thing I have thought about is like, I probably want to speak at more. I was 
not investing in speaking, or I would find ways to do like a panel talk, things that where mm. I didn't have to prep as much. But I, it's been a while since I've put together slides and had a whole talk put together. And I miss that. There, there is something really nice about doing that. And so I would like to probably maybe sign up for a couple at least this year. So now I get to decide which ones. I'm on the Love same just, boat. I, I want to give my first talk this coming year for sure. Nice. What, so same question to both of you. What is, and maybe a little bit different perspective because Ryan, you've done it before. Brad, that would be new for you. Is it just something you think is fun? Is it, do you see that as like a raising awareness for you in your career? Is it, is there a career benefit to it as well? Is it just practicing? What are some of the thoughts of like why that's something you want to do? I can start Brad. Go, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot to think about. I, think, I am curious what, yeah, like coming into it new and not doing it. It'll be interesting to hear your perspective. Um, for me, I think like when I originally started, it was just something like a challenge in that sense. I was terrible. Like I, I just felt like I'd be so nervous to speak and it was something that I wanted to get over. And so part of getting over it is just practice and, and doing that. So that's definitely been something that now I feel comfortable doing it. I'm not worried about it. I can pretty much do it on the fly if I really have to. And so building up that skill set over the years has been amazing. And I think it is beneficial in my career. I mean, as a manager, I'm often leading meetings or just random things that being unprepared and being able to do on the fly is awesome. So I'm thankful for that. When I think about why I continue to do it, it's like, I really love the community. I mean, the five of us are on a podcast, right? We're talking right now about different things. Like I see value in that. It's like, it's, great to share knowledge or just kind of have these types of conversations to learn from one another. I see conferences a great way of that. You don't have to speak at it. You can attend, you can learn from one another. But yeah, being able to speak sometimes and share your ideas and then hear other people's perspectives on that. I, I value that. I, I really, truly enjoy that. And I think that's the most I get out of it. Maybe it's good for your career. Like I'm sure there is some value in it. But to me, it's not really my like end all be all. Yeah, you touched on some of the things that I was definitely thinking about. You know, first of all, it is a challenge. Challenge. It's a box that I want to check for myself, you know, over the course of my career. And I think it's also kind of like a gateway drug. Like you do one and you love it. I started going to conferences maybe only like three years ago, something like that. And like so many good things have come out of meeting people at conferences. So I kind of want to like step up my conference game. What's the next way to do that? You become a presenter, become a speaker. But secondly, and almost selfishly, you kind of touched on this too, Ryan, I want to be able to put my thoughts out there and get either validation or feedback. Like, am I crazy? Am I thinking about this the wrong way? Or am I teaching you a new way to think about this? You know, just to make sure that you understand all the different opinions in the room while you're giving yours. And then that opens the door for side conversations, more networking, and, you know, maybe uh, people tune into what you're thinking, I think is really cool. I mean, Jem, Amy, James, you all spoken. So I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah, I was just thinking, I did a three hour workshop yesterday for a React Ooh. Summit. <laughs> the thing was, I was dreading three hours. I was like, this is gonna be miserable. <laughs> and I ran out of time. Ooh. And I think just getting on the other side of it, I was like, well, and the confidence that comes with, okay, I can do this. And 
it was exciting and thrilling for me to be on the other side and people in the chat because it was a virtual conference through React Summit just to be like, oh man, Redwood is awesome. We love Redwood. And I'm like, my job here is done. I came here to do what I intended to do. But I think, you know, I would like to do more of that. It was, I had a great time once I started going. But it's funny to hear you guys talk about conferencing being a drug. For me, it's one of those things where going into it, I'm like, yeah, I, I could do that. I could talk, but that, that's fine. And then the closer it gets to the date, I'm like, I hate it. Why did I ever do this? This is the worst thing. I'm never doing this again. And then I get up on stage or I talk and then I walk away. I'm like, that was awesome. Like, I want to do this again. When's the next one? And I get so excited. But it's just funny, that roller coaster of emotions, even though I've done it several times now, it's still the same cycle every single time. I have this Nike Run Club app and the coach is always in your ear saying if you're getting nervous or butterflies before a run, it's just misplaced excitement. You oh, know? I like that. So I'm like, yeah. oh, okay. I, like I don't get I don't get nervous before runs, but I will no, definitely I get either, nervous but... before a conference talk. That's true. I like that. That's just a paradigm shift yeah. in how you think about your feelings. Yeah. Uh, which I think is healthy regardless of whether you're doing a conference talk or anything else, you know. Jim, do you have any upcoming talks? Are you planning on doing talks next year? No, uh, Ryan and I just finished. We gave a workshop last week for front-end masters. Oh, fun. Engineering Management 101. Ryan gave Practical Engineering Management 102. That was fun. And kind of like you were saying, Amy, like, oh, three hours. These are full-day workshops. But we, like, we, you get going and you run out of time, which is mm-hmm. a, a good thing. So uh, other than that, I think I'm going to take take a step back on on conferences, things like that. I, I found I just don't have as much time as an engineering manager as I did as a software engineer to to dedicate myself to something that's not related to my job, unfortunately. But uh, on the whole, like speaking, why you should do it, yeah, I, I love doing it because like it crystallizes my thoughts. It like forces me to make a decision and and not waffle on like you know, what's the right way to do things? And I think critically, and then I share that out. That Which is why a conference talk takes, I don't know, what, what would you all say? It takes probably for every minute of time, it's probably like an hour or two. That's so 30 minute talk good. is going to take you. Yeah, it's yeah. a good. Yeah, good estimate on that because mm-hmm. it, it does take a lot. The workshop stuff is like 10x more. Like you're putting way more time into it because it's longer. Something that Jem and I had talked about too is you can't really practice it either. Like, I mean, I guess you could, but like for an all day course, like I don't have a full day to do a run through, right? Like mm-hmm. that just feels like really hard to do. I'm so thankful actually, Jem really convinced me to do the course I kept being like I don't think I can teach a course I don't think that's the right thing and just kind of constantly was like nah self-doubt maybe but luckily Jem you know made me do it in a sense and I'm so thankful for that it was it was amazing I enjoyed it and didn't know that I could fill a day and actually thought I was gonna be like ending early where I'm like I have nothing to cover here but it didn't go that way it's like I was able to cover what I wanted to in in a right amount of time which is cool I feel like workshops or talks that are more intended to teach a specific topic would probably come easier for most of us because you're just kind of spouting off what you know and explaining what you know I think one of the mental barriers I have about giving a talk is I feel like I have to make some conclusion about the world of tech or the the libraries I'm using and extrapolate that about the landscape and how things are changing. And 
I'm like, I don't know. I don't really feel like I have this big, unique thought that I have to get out there. You know, like, I feel like a talk has to be so big and impactful. I'm like, I don't know how to deliver that. I hear you. And I think that's always the barrier for a lot of people. My advice is always that like, you know, you're never going to be the like, the subject matter expert in probably anything. I mean, unless you're maybe wrote the library or something like that, but there's always someone who knows it better. And we can easily get hung up on that, that it's like, well, like, am I the right person to give this talk? Or, oh, there's so many react talks. What am I going to add? What I always say is that you're adding your perspective. And I think that that's the value. I go to talks and maybe be very, not subject matter expert, but feel like I know the topic really well. And I love hearing someone else's thoughts on it. And I'm not expecting to take away like 30 minutes of a talk that I've just learned a ton of new things. It might literally be a one minute takeaway that I was like, wow, I really like how they thought about that. And to me, that's a win. When you can get someone to just take away a snippet from it, if everyone in the audience was able to do that, that's amazing. And you've done your job there or just change someone's thinking on it. So I think like we all get hung up on that. And to me, it's like, yeah, if you put that bar, yeah, probably it's not going to work that you're going to change the game or anything like that by giving a talk. It's literally just sharing a perspective. Yeah. Another perspective is there's four, like four and a half million software engineers in the United States. You, Brad, are one of those four and a half million people. And even all the the companies and things we do still puts us in a really small bucket of of just like experience that most people don't have and most people don't see. And all these other software engineers, we never hear from them because they're not on Twitter. But you know they're all out there working. So I'd say like you do have a unique perspective. It's just easy to lose when all you know are people that work at Netflix and Google's and, and the big companies of the world. You think like the whole world is that, but really the whole world is mostly other smaller companies, smaller, medium-sized companies. So you definitely have something to add. Even if it's just like, here's how I think about things. Like someone's going to find that valuable. They're like, oh, wow. You know, I've been told my whole life, this is how to think about this specific type of problem. But here's someone else who has a different perspective and that really helps. And those are some of my favorite talks, honestly, where they're not trying to pitch me anything. It's just like, here's how I see the world, take it or leave it. But like, here's my perspective. And I was like, oh, and I respect that like a ton. I think also just like the learning talks are always, always get accepted a lot and always just resonate really well. So like we tried to build micro front ends and here's five reasons it sucked for us or five mistakes we made or five reasons that it changed our lives, right? Like that's not you changing, coming out with like some outer worldly opinion or something or like really changing the way people think about life, but it does open them up to like, okay, well, here's someone who actually tried this thing that we may have been considering. And the, this is the stuff that that he learned. I think also we have the burden of knowledge where we forget that everything that we know, somebody slash a lot of people doesn't know those things, right? And this is hard for me as a teacher because when I try to teach something, it's hard for me to remember what it's like to not know that thing. And you can see that like the evolution of some of my content goes a little deeper as I've gotten more technical. And I've had to kind of shift that a little bit to think about like, I still have a very beginner audience on YouTube, for example. Sometimes I need to get back to doing more of that stuff, even though it's not the type of stuff that I necessarily think about on a daily basis because I take it for granted. So, so much of it, I think, is just knowing or anticipating who the audience is and just keeping that in mind when you build the talk to make it um, applicable for the people that show up at whatever experience level they are 
but that's also a challenge because you can't guarantee they're all the same, but it's just something to consider. All the things that you know, somebody else doesn't know those things. And I, I really like your point and suggestion about instead of just teaching how to do X, you you say like, we implemented X, mm-hmm. here's what I thought about it. And that's that. Yeah. That's the, that's a nice in-between instead of like, oh, let me give you my opinion on the entire software industry or the direction of the web and let me just teach you something. It's a nice middle ground where it's like, I had a personal experience. Let me share my takeaway. Because I think, yeah, that's where the personal value comes in. Cool. Do we want to wrap up? We did actually brief either one of you. Uh, and also just time check, because I think we booked for an hour. So if anybody needs to drop, feel free. Otherwise, we have a couple minutes to wrap up. But just want to be respectful of time if we need to. I'm good on time. Yeah, we could probably... I don't know, just plan for doing our like intros, I guess, and kind of how we do that. We have, we do a picks and plugs section at the end. We'll do that. We can try to make it relatively quick and then we'll wrap up. Anyone want to go first? Uh, I got something. Go for it. I was looking for, you know, something to do in my free time and I just got a Nintendo Switch and I rebought a game that I already had and already played called Hades. It it's that good. And when it gave me the option to like reload my save from my computer, I was like, "No, I'm just going to start from the beginning." So I've been having fun replaying that. It's a super fun like kind of fighting type game where you got to get to the end without dying. I thought you gotten the old Zelda that they remade for this. Oh, I did. Played about 30 minutes of it and haven't gone back to it. Not because I don't like it, but I, I got to get there. All right. I think I have two picks to share. Speaking of gems and my workshop on doing practical engineering management, I shared some resources that I found really useful. So they're not new to me, but they were a good reminder of things where I'm like, oh yeah, I really love these. So they're two management books. Actually, one's not even a management book. It's it's a parent book, but I'm going to start with the management book. That, <laughs> it is management. Uh, oh yes, it totally is. But the one is Radical Candor. I think it's just an amazing book for really being able to give direct feedback, thinking about how to deliver those messages. And I think anyone should read it. It's not really just a management book, but I think it's a lot of really good material in that. And then my second one, which is, yes, it is a parent book, but I always think of it as one where it is so helpful how to communicate. It's called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. I I think if you're a parent, read it. If you're a manager, read it. If you are just a human being, read it. It's like you are going to be able to communicate better. I think it's such a great book. I think I've read it twice. So it's like one of those ones where I want to refresh my head with how to approach it, especially with my kids. Do just in case, Brad, I don't think you did one. And in case, Ryan, you want to do like a plug, anything community or podcast or something that you want to shout out? Um, YouTube.com slash Brad Garapy. Check out my videos. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> you can find Gemini on Front End Happy Hour, which is a podcast talking a lot of things tech related. So plug for that. Have you ever thought of embracing Gemini. <laughs> Gemini. I know it's like, it sounds so funny together. <laughs> it's so perfect though. You did go there. Yeah, I heard it. And it, I was like, that's awful. I can jump in and go next. I have been on a, a very fun, very frustrating journey of DIY stuff and trying to do a lot of electrical. I've learned more about electrical than I ever thought I would, which is 
fun and frustrating. But anyways, I settled on buying uh, a couple of flush-mounted ceiling lights that are dimmable because to use a dimmer switcher, the light has to be dimmable. Found this out the hard way, amongst other things. So anyway, I found there's like a two-pack on Amazon that I bought that will be here tomorrow. I guess I always do this. I like pick stuff before I actually know if it's good. I assume it's going to work. And then I have a smart switch, smart switch and dimmer that goes with it. So hopefully I'll have all that stuff set up in the next couple of days. But I put a link in the chat for anybody that's interested. We'll include a link in the show notes for the particular two-pack of uh, flush-mounted lights that are dimmable that I bought myself. It's like we're living the same life. I just installed a recessed light yesterday. Uh, nice. and, and it's a smart one. And then I, I did some of the switches as well. I got a lot more to do to finish the kitchen. We Maybe we can just go way out and do an episode on that someday. I would love to, to do a smart home episode. I've got a lot of cool. smarts up in here. I'm sure you do. <laughs> no, I love it. And for me, I'll plug the Learn, Build, Teach community. So learnbuildteach.com, Discord community. We do a couple of activities a week, I want to add more specifically targeting people that are looking for jobs because a lot of people are, and I want to help support that. So learnbuildteach.com. Amy or Jim want to go next? I can go. So, uh, well, this is not my pick, but Ryan, the coaching habit is really good too. I've picked that one before, um, but it's revolutionized how I do one-on-ones with people. Huge fan. So I'm going to pick, uh, this is an old school game, but still kind of new to me is Mastermind. It's like a puzzle game. It's like a hundred years old, but if you like coding and like logic, it's a fun peg game where you're trying to guess the order of pegs and colors and things like that. So really enjoy playing that with my son. And then I'm going to plug advent of js.com and advent of css.com. So a couple years ago, James and I did some challenges for that. Um, I'm releasing a new set of challenges and Redwood is actually sponsoring it. So If you go through the challenges, you can use any type of framework that you want to accomplish the challenges. And we're actually going to do one giant project over 24 days or the solutions will be free this year because Redwood is sponsoring. So we'll be building on top of Redwood. So if you're interested in Redwood, that's also a good way to see what it's capable of. That looks great, by the way. Thank you. So I don't really have any plugs other than, of course, Frontend Happy Hour and my favorite teaching platform, Frontend Masters, just a good group of people all around. Yeah, I've been doing it for a couple of years with them. It's just it's just a great experience. I just have a pick. I've been watching Blue-Eyed Samurai on Netflix, which is extremely violent. I'll just tell you that, but really enjoying the art style, enjoying the, the story. So that's really enjoyed that, that show so far. And personally... I, I love Formula One and Formula One's in Las Vegas. So for those of you who are around or want to watch a replay, it's quite a spectacle already. So I'm going to be doing that later this evening. That's fun. That's one I've never gotten into, but they have the documentary on Netflix. Yeah, which, start there. That's where you, yeah, that yeah. will get you you'll in. get into that's it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that will, you'll be like, oh shit, I care about this now. Yeah. That's what documentaries. I'm so old. My two favorite things in the world are documentaries and walking <laughs> tours when I go to a new city. Like, <laughs> Ooh, that's really old there, man. I, feel I, know. Like, I don't I think know. I've got to that level, but the documentaries, <laughs> yes. And but I do You're like almost you'll get there. <laughs> I like going to cities and walking. I've never done the tour, but like I've definitely if I'm at a new city, I want to walk yep. around. So self guide. I just love knowing more. I feel like I get a deeper connection because like you go to Paris, and you see the Eiffel Tower and everyone's seen it. Yeah. But if I can walk around and spout off like little random facts about 
<laughs> how it was built or why you or are that fact, person or, so nerdy i love it people in paris hated the eiffel tower when they like proposed it and brought it there they were like i don't know if there were riots but they like really didn't like it anyways someone confirmed in the chat old man james confirmed yes my two favorite <laughs> things so if you're looking to give me a present for christmas it should be one of those <laughs> cool all right. Well, that is the end of this episode. If you're listening in a podcatcher on either side, please leave a rating and review so we both can continue to do episodes and have on amazing guests. In the meantime, that's all we got.